Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Note in your passage, if you will, in Matthew chapter 6, note verse 25 again. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Here's our thought for this morning. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? That's a great question to think about. Is life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Another way we might say that is really what is life? What does it count up to be? Now, we are right now in the presently of the midst of what our society calls the holiday season. And it can be described by the hustle and bustle of life. Last evening, I went into an establishment to buy a few things and I would note how I thought I would have missed crowds by going at 6 o'clock in the afternoon. I did not miss any crowds. I had to pay for somebody to drive my car to the next county over to park so that I could save $5. You know how that works. Hustle and bustle. Now, I didn't run anybody that was mean and ugly to me or anything like that. Overall, it was a pleasant experience. But this is what our society has at this time. In fact, you might even say for our society that Thanksgiving is past. Thanksgiving past Thursday. So for our society, that really, Thanksgiving is just a, a warm-up, really. It's a time in which our society embraces the cuisine that is and prepares to launch out on the commercialism that one has. I'm not preaching against commercialism. But we'd be remiss to believe that it does not play an important fact on our society. It's present. In fact, some of the biggest shopping days read spending days. We're in the midst of. Between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Years ago, I managed a, a toy department and various other things like that. And I always wondered how they paid the bills. And so I met with the store manager and they were going through stuff. And um, she related me something. She said, our company as a whole, some 60 chains in it, 60 stores in the change. She said, we're dependent. We could close our doors on January, February the 1st. We close our doors on February the 1st and not open them again until November the 1st. We could close them that many months. We make most of our money between November the 1st and the end of January. And that explained to me why there's, there's stores in our society that open up two, three months a year and close it down. She said, we make 90% of all of our money, 75 to 90% of all of our money in three months. You're in the midst of a commercial-driven society. These are not shopping days, they are spending days. It's interesting, I read an article this week from CNBC. They reported that uh, through their polling that 25% of all Americans have holiday debt left over from last year. That's a terrible thing to really consider. I think this is one of the reasons why this time of year produces such great divisions in relationships. It's the busiest time of year. The expectations are extremely high. The stress is higher. The wanter wants much this time of year. The airwaves and the media are, are constantly bombarded about with the latest and the greatest. And of course, we as being part of humanity sometimes feel that we ought to have all that we can have in this life. We ought to lay up for ourselves. 
But I remind us again of the Lord, the question that He put forth to them, the statement in one sense, is not life more than meat. And it's interesting in this parable here, uh, of the 38 or so parables that the Lord would publicly address, 16 of them dealt in one form or another to some reference of money. In fact, across the New Testament, one, on average, one in ten verses will make reference of finances. That's a lot. In fact, if you're considering this for a moment, throughout the New Testament, there are approximately 500 verses that deal with prayer. There are just under 500 verses that deal with faith. But there are over 2,000 verses that deal in one fashion or another with finances. Why? Because the necessities of the life and the desires of the heart are a cold, blunt reality. Time will not permit us to do all of this, but if you cycle back through the verses we read a moment ago, you see a multitude of conflicts. You see, no man can serve two masters. In uh, verse number 24 and verse number 19, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Several times in these passages, three times I think, in verse, um, in verse uh, number 25, 31, and 34, you have the phrase, take therefore or take no thought therefore. The reality is interesting. It seems that this passage would deal not only the rich, but it will also deal with the poor. Both of them, whether one esteems themselves to be rich or poor or somewhere in between, there are unique circumstances, might we call them temptations, that fall into both. For the rich, there is always the temptation to trust their possessions. Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 deals with this. For the rich, there's the temptation to be self-satisfied. I mean, why not? There's joy, a certain amount of joy in having things. Isn't there? Sure. You know, as a kid, it's having a new ball or a new bat. For some kids, it's having a new box. You ever met that child? You give them something and they want the box. The box is fun. For adults, it really never ceases. If you sit down for a moment and allow yourself to be unbridled, and I would not suggest this so often, but you could write down a list of things that you really want in life. And you could even arrange that list into the things you want most, and of that list, the things that you could wait longer for. Many today, if they become discouraged or need a pick-me-up, they'll go shopping. They have an idea uh, that wealth has brought to them that there's a level of self-satisfaction in it. For the rich, there certainly is a false sense of security. You see that today in our society. You know, in the 1960s, uh, that was before my time. But in the 1960s, we were in the middle of a Cold War. And some of you went to elementary school in the 1960s or earlier. And you can remember the times where little school children were being trained in how to hide, hide under their desk during, you know, bomb. How many of you remember that? J just the reason, I want you to hold your hand up a minute. You might think I'm being crazy saying this, but look around. Keep your hands up. A lot of these children, uh, well, former children, were little 
and they can give you all the details of it, but they were instructed, they hear a certain siren, you know, you, you hide under your desk. That seems so foreign to my mind. Yet I would note today, school children are not trained to that, but today there's more people in the U.S. that own a bomb shelter than there were in the 1960s. In the 1960s, you didn't necessarily have the wherewithal to do all of that. But today, you can hear all over the YouTube about people that have bug-out bags and preparations made and land they own in an undisclosed location that they have buried uh, the, the cargo box of a tractor trailer in with its own private ventilation system. There are very wealthy people today that have bought exclusive memberships in high-end bomb shelters for when the coming struggle occurs. Why? Because well, a temptation for the rich is it provides for them a false sense of security. The proverb says that a rich man's wealth is his high city. He runneth into it and thinketh himself safe. Yet there's temptation for the poor, isn't there? For the poor, the temptation for them is to doubt God's provision. God's forgotten me. How will I ever make it through? I don't know that I can get by with meager funds that I have. That leads to some extent to worry and ultimately a deviation of worry is anxiety. It's time of year folks can have panic attacks over feeling that they do not have subsequent finances necessary to fulfill the expectations that I would say they have unduly placed upon themselves. And of course, if a rich man's temptation is a false sense of security, then a poor man's temptation is certainly a false sense of insecurity. Doubts that he's doing well enough. Wonders if they're being a good enough father or mother. These are real things to think of. Of course, I find in the life of the Apostle Paul a unique statement of Philippians chapter 4. I know how to be abound, and I know how to abase. I know how to be in need, I know how to have all my needs met. I can do all things through Christ Jesus that strengtheneth me. And to these, three times, the Lord addresses, take no thought in verse 25. In verse 31, therefore take no thought. Verse 34, uh, that was verse 31. Verse 34, take therefore no thought. If I can put that in a common expression, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. One of the greatest antidotes against anxiety and worry is having a singleness of mind. I hearken back to verse number 22. The light of the body of the eye is the eye. If I therefore be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. It's really to come, the great antidote for anxiety is to recognize what life for the believer is all about. You know, somehow sandwiched in all of these affairs and actions of life is the consideration of what makes for a successful and fulfilling life. I have maybe half a dozen of these, four or five of them, I guess I'll read to you, but I want you to think about this. What makes for a successful and fulfilling life? In fact, I have 
maybe I would put a blank out. You, you write down with these. What makes for a successful, fulfilling life? Now don't go and play the spiritual card just yet and say God. I'm talking about what is it society says. What sometimes is my heart tempted to proceed afterwards because in my mind and in my thought I have deemed something to be the sum of a rewarding and fulfilling life. Fill in that blank. For some, a successful and fulfilling life is defined by the pleasures that they have in life. And I'm not really preaching against anything. I'm highlighting things. And some would say the epitome of what makes you successful and what would really give me fulfillment would be the pleasures of life. Some, that might be a hunting cabin. Some, that might be the extra boat. You say, preacher, hunting cabin boat's wrong? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that there are some that they set all their aspirations on life and that is the conclusion of said some. Some, it would be collectibles. Collections. I worked at that toy store. And he's, this was just a striking memory that I have. But I sold all these matchbox cars. I don't know, we had 200 of them. And uh, I kept noticing that these five or six retired gentlemen kept coming into the toy store and looking at these cars. And I assumed that they were buying them for their little children. So one day I saddled up and I walked over, or grandchildren, I should say, maybe great-grandchildren, I don't know. But I sidled up to one of them and I said, hey, what, what, what can I help you with? He said, do you have any of these? And I don't remember the exact thing, but do you have any of these green? Do you have any of these cars that have a green label on the packaging and are numbered under the number 50? And I was like, I don't know, man. I just put them out. What? Oh, well, if you, those are the mystery cars. And number 1 through 49 are very special. 50 and up, you got a, I saw a 75 over there. They're a dime a dozen. He said, but one through 50 are very... I go around all of these toy stores and I look for those. He said, I'll tell you something. Are you interested in collecting these? And I said, no. He said, well, I'll tell you what. I'll pay you to call me. If that shipment comes in, you squirrel one of those away. If you find them, I may already have it or not, and you call me, here's my number, and I promise you, I'll give you an extra 20 bucks. So you know what I did? I went to eBay to see what these things were worth. That's what I did. And I thought, man, and sure enough, a shipment came through. I called him, I said, I'll hold it for 24 hours, which was common practice. He came in, he bought it. They gave me $20. I've been sad about that and holding a grudge since. That's what brought him pleasure. So some would say that your life is successful and fulfilled if it has pleasures of life. Some would say that your life is successful and fulfilling if you've really experienced life to the full. And I don't know what that means exactly because experience is so random. They've said of those of my generation have waited some of the longest to buy homes. And part of that reality was that they wanted to experience all of life that they possibly could. They wanted to travel Europe before they bought a home. They, they wanted to spend time uh, RVing around the country before they did these things. There were experiences that they really wanted in life and experiences. And the more experiences you could have in life, well, just the more rewarding and enjoyable life would be to you. 
Some define life by accumulation. Get all I can. Find it interesting in America that we buy all this stuff between November and February so that we can have yard sales from June through August. Accumulations. I'm not. Listen, if one of these happens to be your struggle point, I'm not pointing at you, but I'm simply saying that at times some folks think that they've got to have to have a rewarding, fulfilling life. Some it's defined by prestige. How they have attained in life. What the mark was that they arrived at. Why, if you were a congressman, or you were a general in the military forces, or an admiral in the naval forces, if you were a governor, if you were a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, then you really have done something tremendously remarkable that makes your life obviously one that was successful. I'd note something. I've been in a lot of cemeteries in my life. And there's a lot of very prestigious individuals that I walk right by their headstone. As I would say, if you don't really accomplish something by a system in place, well, that's not a prestigious life that you had. Some would say that a successful and filling life is always accounted by the checkbook. So the more zeros, and I mean to the positive side, the more zeros, the more successful you are. The more houses and lands that you own, the bigger your retirement accounts and financial accounts, the more institutions that are acquainted with you, the more buildings that bear your name in a sense. That's really what it means to be successful. I would note, even in this society, it can be very challenging to get wealth by honest means. Now, I'm not saying that every wealthy person's a crook. I'm just simply saying that a lot of evil happens in following after wealth. Say, preacher, come on. Well, let me put it this way. The Holy Spirit moved upon Paul in 1 Timothy and said, for the love of the money is, that's what I'm telling you. What is it that makes for a successful, fulfilling life? Fill in that blank. Yet the Lord in this parable states this, Is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? In Luke chapter 12 and verse 23, the parallel passage, He says the life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. So what is your life? What is the measurement and the essence of life? It's more than just meat. It's more than the necessities of life. It's more than just wealth or prestige or the accumulation of things and substance. Life is more than experience. Life is more than pleasure. What is it? Is a thought for us this morning. Let me give you a few things. Number one, life is essential. Life is essential, for it is given by God. You think over in Galatians, or rather Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 29, that on that sixth day God created man. In the next chapter, in Genesis chapter 2, we get a little more clarity out of it. And the Lord says of it that He breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and He became a... 
living soul. Where did life come from? That's a great question on the theological plane and on the scientific plane too. What is the chemical makeup of life? I'm going to be honest, a scientist can tell you what a person or an animal is made of. But they cannot tell you where life came from. Scientists can tell you that you're so many particles of carbon and so much nitrogen and so much water and subsequently so much oxygen and hydrogen. But that's not the same thing as having a theological understanding of where life is. The best that a secular scientist can tell you is life is a result of the perpetuity of a great explosion that happened into the past. What do you mean? That your life continues because there was an explosion of nothing that created something that put into motion complexities of life and through random changes spawned you. But the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand how the world was framed. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, on that sixth literal day, God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. Therefore, when we speak of human life, it is essential because it, like all other lives, but to a greater extent, humanity made in the very similitude of God, Genesis chapter 2 and verse 26, life was given by God. You know, if I'd adopt the evolutionist perspective uh, for a moment, I would say that the greatest thing that should define a successful and fulfilling life is attaining, is experiences, is prestige, is wealth, accumulation, etc. Because one then day is going to come my end and what shall become of me? I would adopt that. Paul's expression of live, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. I would adopt that. But the Bible tells me that God created humanity in His own image. Breathe into the nostrils the breath of life. Life, therefore, is essential because life was given by God. The second note I would have you know about life is that life expires. Life as we experience it is not eternal on this side of eternity. Listen to the 90th Psalm, the 10th verse. The days of our years are threescore years and ten. And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet is their strength and labor and sorrow, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. James 4 says, what is your life? It is but a vapor. It appeareth for a little time and then what? Vanishes away. Your life is not eternal. In the Silicon Valley, where all crazy people live, in the Silicon Valley, there's a well-known tech guy I mean, he's a very intelligent man and he's made for himself vast fortunes and he now has taken his fortunes and he is trying to reduce aging in his life. Some through exercise, some through diet, some through supplemental stuff, some through levels of rest and he measures all of this with a fanatical precision. You can read about it. Just Google, tech guy trying to beat aging. And he and various other scientists have, have equated uh, your expression of life in your number of years, and he's trying to get that to go backwards. I think he's 38 now. 
And he measured himself up against his son that's like 19. And soon they'll cross over because his son's 19 and a 19-year-old knows that they're forever eternal and they're forever youthful. This guy says, the real proof will come when I'm in my 60s. When I have the body of a 19-year-old in my 60s. And I marveled at that. Humanity, male and female, today spend vast fortunes, vast fortunes to beat death. I think of all the Botox injections and all the plastic surgeries that some 77-year-old women will go through so they can pretend for a moment that they're really only 33. You want to know a fact about life, life expires. It's not eternal on this side. And the psalmist says, the longer I live, there's labor and sorrow. It expires. A third thing about life is its experiences are varied. Look over in 1 Samuel. You're in here, Matthew. Hold your place. Put a marker in it. Look in 1 Samuel. It's one of the historical books. So you get on down past the Judges, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And I want to draw your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 2. Now, we were doing a baby dedication this morning. This is one of the passages we'd visit. Primarily, it's the prayer, or much of it is the prayer at least, that Hannah's praying, and it's the account of God's blessing to her uh, and her promise that she would fulfill uh, to God. But I want to draw your attention, 1 Samuel chapter 2, to verse number 6. Note these words. The Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. Verse 7, the Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and he lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill. He set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he hath set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of his saints, and the wicked shall be silent in darkness, for by strength shall no man prevail. That's a marvelous statement to think of. In fact, this is an expression of the sovereignty of God. Experiences in this life are going to vary. Not all of us will have the same opportunity in life. Subsequently, not all of us will have the same experiences in life. Not all of us will get the same sicknesses in life. Certainly, save the coming of the Lord, we'll all die, but we will not all die under the same conditions. That's the hand of God at place. Experiences vary in this life. It's a sad thing in our multimediation uh, media era where you can find of these various experiences that people have. And you can spend all of your life and all of your resources trying to have experiences that you can barely afford. Because somewhere deep down is the thought 
that the more successful my life, the more experienced my life is, the more valuable my life is. Number four, life is an expression of free choice. Life is an expression of free choice. Look at the Old Testament again, Deuteronomy. So, fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In chapter 30, I have several verses that we could consider here, but we'll just look at two. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, life is an expression of free choice. You have a free will. You choose. There are tons of choices that you'll make on a regular basis. Here to the children of Israel, in these last words that Moses would have to them, he expresses this. Notice, if you will, in chapter 30 and verse 15. He says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good, death and evil. I'm giving you a choice. Do this in blessing, choose to do good, blessing. Choose to do that which is evil. Note the consequence that is to come upon it. If you draw your attention, verse 19, he makes it again a, uh, a statement. Verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, what's your word? Choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. It reminds us really of Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, doesn't it? Choose you this day who you will serve. Are these pagan gods or those that existed before the flood? But as for me and my house, we're going to choose the Lord. Free choice. Life has an expression of free choice. This can really be seen in the reference that you find in the Proverbs. For instance, in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 33 and 22 and chapter 6 and verse 23 and various other passages, he talks about he that heareth instruction, he that forsaketh instruction. Well, what makes the difference? The choice the individual makes. So what is life? Is life more than meat? Well, I'm going to tell you this. Life is an expression of free choice. Number five, life is esteemed. I know it's not the third Sunday of January, but we'd fail to realize this morning that as we consider life and its purpose and its essence, that life is a gift from God. Therefore, there is a level of sanctity of human life. In the 139th Psalm, verse 13 through 14, he speaks on these very things. Uh, that thou knewest my substance being yet unformed. Thou were acquainted with my substance. All in those developmental months within my mother's womb, you knew me. You designed me. And that's one of the reasons... In the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 13, there is the command that thou shalt not kill. You'll find that command given again in Deuteronomy 5 and 17 and referenced by our Lord in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 21. Anywhere where murder is being committed, there must be a just penalty of life. I think again about Genesis chapter 9 and verse 5 through 7. Why? Because life is esteemed, it's valuable because God made it. God breathed into its essence the breath of life. A human life is a valuable, distinct life. It's not like the life of an animal. I, I love animals. 
I love to pet animals. I love to watch animals. I love to eat animals. I mean, I'm just a lover of animals. When you consider animals, I think there's an appreciation. There's a responsibility. I think any Bible-believing Christian ought to be something of a, of a conservator of natural life, of the animals of the field. What do you mean? Well, we don't waste them. We don't poach them. We don't destroy them. I understand that not everything taken in hunting is truly being able to be digesting. I understand that. But God has made it and He's given it unto us and we have a responsibility to steward it, to steward it well. But it's distinct from human life. God made thousands of animals, but He only made one human race. It's to be esteemed. A sixth thing that I would tell you that the Bible says about life to answer our question, is not life more than meat? Is this, that life, human life is estranged from God. In Romans chapter 5, it tells us in verse 12, Through one man's sin, sin into the world, and death passed upon all, for all have sinned. In the previous verses, it speaks of humanity being ungodly, being sinners, and ultimately even being enemies against God. Now I think of those and I always in that imagination of my mind when I think about being an enemy and ungodly and sinful and all that in Romans chapter 5, I think, well, you know what that, those are adults. Late teen adults. That's what those are. But that's not theologically true. The Bible says in Psalm 58 verse 3, the wicked are estranged from their mother's womb. They go forth as soon as they be born, speaking lies. That means even children have inherited a sin nature and a proclivity for sin and commit sin. That's right, that cute, lovely little child is a sinner. And yet, we're told about how God reconciled man unto himself. The phrase in the gospel, eternal life, is mentioned so many times in the gospel of John and in 1 John for that matter. And the scripture I would remind you of is 1 John chapter 5 and verse 12. He that hath not the Son hath not life. He that hath the Son hath eternal life abiding in him. The responsibility that there is for each individual to receive in this life and be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It truly is transforming. As I am translated from a kingdom of evil unto his glorious light, knowing that God commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Knowing Acts chapter 4, neither is there salvation in any other name, for none other name is given under heaven whereby men must be saved. That was the purpose of Christ's incarnation. That was the purpose of fulfilling all of the glorious signs and miracles and wonders that he did. That was the purpose of fulfilling the prophecy of being pierced and nailed upon a cross. That was the purpose by which he died, was to provide a means not only to the Jew, but to any one of Adam's race who by faith would receive that marvelous gift. Romans 10 makes it so clear. 
if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, Lord Jesus, and shalt believe on thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. I believe it's 33 times in the epistle of Romans in Christ Jesus. I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. And speaking of Christ, he became sin for us that knew no sin. How's the rest of that go? Do you remember? That we might become made the righteousness of God that is in him. That's transformative there. That is the moment that he bore my sin. And now, from the eyes of God, I'm no longer estranged, but I bear in my positional body the very glory and wonder of the divine Godhead in the person and work of Jesus Christ. No longer estranged, but if not born again, still estranged. I leave you with a seventh thought about life as we consider this verse. Is not life more than meat? What's the purpose of life? True life and all of its success and all of its wonder and fulfillment is only and always found evidenced in Christ Jesus alone. You want to get to the real root to answer the question that the Lord was giving in parable form? Is not life more than meat? Yes. What's the purpose of life then? Now you can never attain unto the purpose of life if you're estranged from God. If you would attain unto the purpose of life, if you would measure to the peace, if you would like to lie on your deathbed and look back and have very few regrets, it will only be found in your association and fellowship and in your walk with God. John 10.10 says, The thief cometh not but to kill and to steal and destroy, but I am come that they might have life and that more abundantly. How do I have this relationship? And really, how do I commune and have fellowship with God? That's really the essential ingredient. How do I walk with God? I've got to know Him. Know what He wants. Know what He has decreed. Know what He desires of me. I've got to believe the truth that will bring about obedience in my life. I've got to seek to please Him. Lord, what is it that you want me to do? Lord, what pleases you? Lord, produce obedience in me. And then I move from belief and the, and the, the twin sister of obedience or I should say belief. The twin sister of belief is always obedience. Obedience deals with my sins. It deals with my fleshly thoughts. It causes me to delight in His Word. It causes me to defer to His way in life. And the ultimate result of knowing Him, believing Him, and obeying Him is always the fact that I'll rejoice in Him. That might be that I find myself in prison for preaching of the truths of the Word of God, like Paul. Well, if I know that I knew him and I believe him and I obeyed him, then what's it matter if I'm in prison? His sovereign head hath led me all the way. If I had known him and I've been obedient, I believed him and been obedient, what's it matter if my name is Lazarus and I eat crumbs from the rich man's table? That's the essence of Matthew chapter 6. Let me give you a closing thought here. Turn over to Ecclesiastes. I mentioned that at the onset. Ecclesiastes, in my estimation, is a wonderful picture. <clears throat> it's a picture of a man that pursued things. 
He opens up the first couple of chapters talking about his pursuits so that he might get all he can out of life. Really attempting to answer the question we've looked at this morning. Isn't life more than meat? And he has set out to fulfill all of that and saying, no, life is the measurement of meat. In chapter 1, he pursues with all of his vigor learning and education. Amassing every ability that he possibly could. And yet, after getting to a certain point in all of his learning, he said, man, it's vanity and vexation of spirit. So he changed gears. He said then, in chapter 2, he would pursue laughing, mirth. He's going to seek all of the joys of this life. He's going to have fun. YOLO, you know, you only live once. Get every kick out of life that you can. He's going to have frivolous living. And at the conclusion of verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, what doeth it, he says. It did not bring about completion in his heart. What is life, he was still left to ask. Then in verse number 3, he has the pursuit of liquor. Verse number 3, he gave himself to wine. He laid on on all the foreign substances that could possibly be had. Because life is hard and maybe there's an enjoyment if you have different experiences. That's it. If I can only just have this to help me pass the tide of life, if I can just have this substance in life and just inject this into myself, boy, then, then I'll have something. Observationally, he could have known that this would not bring the fruit he had hoped for. You know what every individual on drugs wants? One more hit. You know what every drunkard wants? One more drink. He looks at the end of verse number 3, and it comes to conclusion that this was folly. He then pursues in chapter 2, verses 4 through 9, the luxuries of life. Got pools of water. Not one pool, pools of water. Vineyards and gardens and orchards and fruits and servants and maids. Silver and gold in verse number 8. All the luxuries that you could possibly have. He even had a host of people, men singers he would speak of and women singers and would be able to delight in all the musical instruments and all sorts. And he was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem, and also had all his wisdom, all my wisdom was with me. And verse 10 he said, And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not from my heart any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labors. This was my portion, all my labors. And then I looked, I'm in chapter 2 and verse 11, on all the works of my hands had wrought, and on the labors that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. You know what he's saying? Isn't life more than meat? Turn to the end of the book. You see, he comes to the end of the book. He gives you the last pursuit. And emphatically states though in different words, the same truth that the Lord in parable was giving to those around him as he gave the Sermon on the Mountain. Life is more than meat. The body is more than raiment. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Notice, if you will, in chapter 12 and verse 13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments 
for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. You, you want to know what Solomon's in conclusion was about life? Life is more than things and meats and desires. A successful life is a life that pursues passionately the person of Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That press toward is the idea of persecuting. He said, I count all the successes I've had of life for nothing that I might just do one thing. Pursue hard after Jesus Christ. It's the whole matter. It's the whole duty of man. What is the essence of life? Only thing that really matters. And the great scheme and light of eternity is your relationship and fellowship with God. For as you walk with God and you're obedient to God, you believe God and are obedient to God, then the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your heart and minds through Christ Jesus. Say, preacher, that won't make a sick man become healthy. I didn't promise that. The end result of this life is what? It expires. Say, preacher, that wisdom that you gave there from Ecclesiastes won't make a poor man become rich. No, but the only difference in a poor man's grave and a rich man's grave is the size of the monument. But my friend, it'll make the journey through life a peaceful one. It won't remove all the troubles from your life, but it'll give you peace through the storms of life. And the great measure of what life is, it calls me as a child of God to have singleness unto the Lord and to seek with my life not to lay up the insignificant treasures that are amazing into some degree, but rather to amass a great labor for my God in this life. To not live for self, but rather deny it. To seek first the kingdom of God, not seek it when I have opportunity to. To make my walk of God preeminent, to make my obedience to God a preeminent thing. Too often in the American Christian's house, God is just one pursuit that they follow after. And surely a miserable place that is. For we're able neither to please God, nor the God we pursue. So dear Christian, is life more than meat? Yes. Walk with God. Pursue Him with singleness of heart. This is the full measure of it. Let's stand to our feet. Father. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. 17112 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time, 